Well, as you do, I sometimes listen to sermons uh, from other preachers. Um, the reason I do it is I like to hear other preachers uh, who preach well so that I can maybe improve my preaching skills. And you're thinking, Scott, you should probably do that more regularly. And uh, that, would, that would be a great help to us as a congregation. Uh, but I, I did hear this opening to a sermon, and I thought it was just, uh, I thought it was just super helpful as I was uh, studying this passage in Corinthians. Uh, and, and the question that he opened with was, who needs the church when I have an iPhone? Who needs the church when I have an iPhone? I mean, I mean, it was an iPhone on which I was listening to his sermon. And, and, it, and it just kind of got me, got me to thinking that what he was after was the fact that in, in our church today, you know, we're, we're going to be looking at the Corinthians here in a moment who have divisions and factions. In our church today, there's something in our culture, I think, that is, that is tearing or fracturing the church body. And, and I would put a finger on it and say it's individualism. I've got an iPhone. What do I need the church for? I, I, can, I can act independent of the church in my worship and whatever ministry I choose to carry out. I'm, I'm really, even, even if I might attend a church, you know, I'm, I'm really not interested in what they might have to say to me. I, I go and get out of it what I want to get out of it. But I, I, I pretty much make all of my decisions independent of what that church says or does. Uh, I, even when I get my spiritual information, I, I, I get it on, I get it on an, an iPhone. I get it from the Internet. That, interesting, I'm remembering this oh, way, way back from the 2005, 6, maybe something like that. Uh, Ron mentioned George Barna earlier. He had put out a book. It was a little controversial at the time. And, and, uh, and he said that he thought that by, by the year 2015, maybe 20, maybe 30% of the people in churches would get their spiritual information from the Internet. He was woefully conservative. Many people in churches get their spiritual information, their biblical information from the Internet, not necessarily from their churches. And, and what this does, this, this idea of individualism, I, I will do this my way. You know, and I will, I will access things as I want to, to suit myself. But I haven't really, really come together to say this is the body of Christ, the local body I want to participate in. What that does is it relegates the church itself to a service provider. Right? It's not a body or a people. It's a service provider. And if it has the service that I'm seeking, then I may go let them provide it for me. But I'm really not buying into anything. I'm really not committing to anything. I'm not really being what the Bible calls a church. And, and I think in many ways we've redefined broadly what the evangelical church in America is. It's that. There, there, was, a, there was a huge push in the church growth movement to say, you know, the church, well, it still has what people need. It still has what lost people and sinners need, but we're just not doing it in a way that appeals to them. So let's, let's start doing things in ways that appeal to lost people. And in making that commitment, the church lost a lot itself. It was actually a Barna article that said the church's purpose now, in this modern age, is not worship. It's not discipleship. It's not fellowship or baptism or the Lord's Supper. Well, what is it? What is the purpose of the church now? It's life transformation. 
We're here to be a life transformation center for anybody who wants our services, and that's the service that we provide, which leaves me asking, well then, who is it that has the purpose for worship if it's not the church? Who is it that has a worship service that's actually a worship service if it's not the church? The writer of Hebrews said, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love. Stir one another up to good works. That's, that's the gathered church. That's who he's talking about. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I think worship is the church's purpose. And as we're going to find out this morning, the Lord's Supper is at the center of that. We gather to eat and drink the Lord's Supper as a celebration of Christ's death for our salvation, a participation in loving fellowship with one another, and to declare the certainty of His return. So, what is going on in the church in Corinth? Let's find out, beginning in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the Word of God. And clearly we can tell that this is in the context of the church's gathered worship. And Paul 
had previously commended the church for maintaining the traditions or his instructions to all the churches for worship. In the practice of the Lord's Supper, though, he cannot commend them. Why? Because they're doing it wrong. Imagine Paul saying this to us. Imagine Paul saying this to you as you sit there in the gathered worship at Christ Fellowship Church. When you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. The manner in which the church was eating and drinking the Lord's Supper was actually doing more harm than good. Well, what harm? Well, Paul has received a report from some members of the church where verse 18 says, I believe in part. There's a, there's a footnote if you're looking at the ESV that says, uh, this can be translated also, I believe a certain report, uh, which makes much more sense. Part of the report is about the problem of the Lord's Supper. He believes it. And the problem is that of division in the church. The word for division is literally schism. There's schism in the church. The manner in which they were eating and drinking the Lord's Supper was ripping the church apart. That's the word Paul uses. And, and it's not hyperbole this time. Just considering the nature of the gospel is to unite and that the Lord's Supper is an enactment of that gospel unity means that for divisions to be the result of the Lord's Supper is an epic failure. It's the opposite of what's supposed to happen. It's serious, Paul says. This division is caused by factions. Someone is doing the ripping, the tearing apart of the Lord's Supper and the worship service of the church. Verse 19, it's a curious verse. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Interesting verse. What does it mean? There, there are basically two ways to take it. One is to say that Paul is making kind of a side comment here. It's a, it's a theological, ecclesiological comment that he's kind of adding. It goes something like this. There have to be factions in the church in order to be able to point to which group is right so that you can see the example of what is right. If there are two factions, certainly one's wrong. But couldn't both be wrong? I mean, this, this kind of seems problematic to me. Because divisions and fractions in the church are always condemned. We're always told you're not supposed to have those. That's sin. And Paul has been arguing this whole letter that there must not be divisions and factions in the church. Someone arguing that sounds like they, they might have a dog in this fight. If that's what they're saying. Which is the other way to take this verse. The other way to take this verse is that it sounds like another one of those Corinthian slogans that Paul has put in his letter and turned on them. They are the ones saying, well, of course there are and should be divisions among us. How else would you be able to tell who are the super spiritual Christians and recognize them as being the most genuine? That makes more sense. That's, that's what I'm inclined to believe. It sounds just like the Corinthians. And Paul uses it against them in the same way he has used previous quotes that we've read. I'm more persuaded of that understanding. So who is this puffed up faction who prefers visible and functional divisions in their brothers and sisters in the church? 
We'll look again at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that it's the rich and the socially elite people in the church who want this socioeconomic society, the, the thing that's out in society, to be carried over into the church as well. And they're doing it. And it's most evident in their worship service at the Lord's Supper. It's as if someone in the congregation took a video of the church. Take your, take your iPhone back out. And just you know, took a video of the church. Everybody's taking the Lord's Supper. And they text it to Paul. You know, I, think, I think Paul would probably text back like this. They probably texted like this. Um, but but they text it to Paul. And, and, and they type in, here we are eating the Lord's Supper. And Paul, Paul, watches, Paul watches the video, and he texts back in all caps, that is not the Lord's Supper. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're eating your supper. Now, here's what most commentators think. With, with minor variations or minor speculations about what it might have exactly looked like, here's what most commentators think Paul's describing. The church is probably meeting in someone's house because they didn't have a dedicated church building. In order for the whole church to meet in one house, it was, it was probably a large house and it was probably owned by one of the rich people in the church. And the rest of the church, the poor and the needy, and the servants and the slaves, are kind of trapped in going along with this with this setup, because it's just, it's just how it's working at that point in time. And since it's this man's house, he sets the table, so to speak. There's archaeological evidence that indicates in, you know, in, in, in Roman homes like this, there was probably a decent-sized dining room, the beautiful mosaic tile floor, and, uh, and there were these plush couches, not tables and chairs like a dining room that we would look at, these, these plush couches where they would recline and be fed. So this is where, this dining room is where the few rich people would recline and dine in comfort. Next to it is a bigger, a larger, but an outdoor courtyard. It was bigger than the dining room, and, and in the middle of it, it would have a pool that would collect water. And, and it was very pretty, too. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but there weren't any... There weren't any plush couches, there weren't any chairs, there weren't any tables at all. It was standing room only. And so the rest of the church, the servants, the laborers, the slaves, they would stand there waiting. I mean, you can, you can visibly see the church split. It seems that the early church often incorporated a full meal into the Lord's Supper. We see this in various places. They began with the Eucharist by, by breaking bread, and then they would eat a full meal in the middle, and then they would finish the Eucharist with the cup of blessing. This has been referred to in Scripture by various things. The fellowship meal, it's sometimes called. The love feast, it's sometimes called. The, the word Eucharist just means thanksgiving. Now, the rich homeowner was really only following the accepted customs of the day and serving the meal. He was doing what he would do at any meal. His servants would serve the rich Christians in the dining room the best food and the best wine and plenty of it. 
the lesser food and the lesser wine and less of it was sent out for the poor Christians standing in the courtyard. So, it is the rich people in the dining room who contend that there must be factions in order for the genuine to be recognized. Everybody knows that. That's how it's done. Maybe they would add, <clears throat> you know, we accept our poorer brethren, but you don't expect us to eat with them, do you? See, this is the Lord's Supper in the gathered worship service of the church in Corinth. And it's ugly. One is shoving delicious food in his face and getting drunk on the aged fermented wine, and another has only scraps to wash down with the new wine. And Paul can't believe it. What is wrong with you people? This is not the Lord's Supper. It's the supper of your arrogance. It's the supper of your selfishness. They're supposed to be doing what builds up and what's good for their neighbor. They're supposed to not be giving offense and not seeking their own advantage, but seeking the advantage of others. And so Paul puts his finger right on their hearts and he says, you're despising the church and you're humiliating your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the indictment. The way you are conducting the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is ripping apart the church of God and doing harm to the very brothers and sisters with whom you were called into fellowship with. You're not eating or drinking to the glory of God. You're doing more harm than good. So what about us? Oh, do we have to go there? Of course we do. It's called sermon application. Look, what about us? Could we be like that? Could we be like that? How could we become like these Corinthians? I think there are, I think there are three distinct ways that can lead us into the same kind of division that left unchecked can result in us despising the church and humiliating our brethren. Are you ready? Are you sure? One way is to be selfish. To come to church, to come to this worship gathering demanding that it's really all about you and what you can get out of it. That the church really is a service provider and I really am a church consumer. You might ask questions like, will I be fed what I want to be fed? I'll gorge myself on the songs I like, but don't expect me to sing the ones I don't like. I'll pay attention to the people I prefer to lead my praying and singing, but not everyone who is committed to putting the extra work of preparing to lead me. You might ask yourself the question, will I get the seat I want and be comfortable? Are there enough empty chairs between me and the next person? Is it too hot, too cold? I just won't overlook it if the lyrics on the screen are a beat late or if the singer's microphone is not loud enough. Will I be treated the way I think I deserve to be treated? By the brethren? Will they seek me out and talk about whatever I want to talk about in the fellowship time? Or by the pastor? Will the sermon affirm me just as I am? Or will I be expected to grow in my faith and expand my participation in the body?
See, the Corinthians were selfish in these ways. Are you? Another way is to show partiality. There are some people in the church I like better than others. They're the ones I always make a point to fellowship with after the service. There are others I don't even know their names. Do you say to yourself, I like a small church, and sometimes I wish it was about two or three people smaller. Because those are the people for whom Christ died, and you are humiliating them. At least inwardly, although I have an idea that they've probably figured it out. Here's the way that concerns me the most. It is that we fail to understand community over individuality. It concerns me because it's the biblical teaching for the church. Like the Corinthians, our culture, I mean, we come by it honestly. Our culture is all about my individuality, my rights, my success, my happiness. We're groomed. We're groomed to see ourselves in isolation from the people around us. It's just like I stand here and I draw a circle around myself, and that's my world, and all there out there is there to serve me. I will let it in if I want to, not if I don't. And we'll stand in the church and draw the same circle. Heaven help you if you linger over a playful kitten video on your Instagram feed. Because all of your social media accounts will let you isolate yourself with more playful kitten videos, won't they? Everything is geared towards our individuality. And you wonder why you don't have anything to say to anyone. Except watch this playful kitten video. Except to talk about your own interests, your own problems, with no real interest in the lives of others. I cannot even commend myself in this. I should lead a better example. Because the gospel is pushing us to see the church community over our individuality. Jesus is pushing us to see his church body over our individualism. The Lord's Supper is not an individual ordinance. It's a corporate ordinance. Pushing us to love and serve one another to the glory of God. And so Paul goes on to say, here's why that's so. Again in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after the supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul has already instructed the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. It's part of the tradition that he's passed down, but they're, what they're doing, how they're doing it, is antithetical to the Lord's Supper. So he delivers to them instructions for the Lord's Supper, just as Jesus delivered it to his apostles. 
Jesus with his, with his disciples at the Passover feast in Jerusalem the night before he was crucified. Remember, the, remember that the blood of the Lamb preserved for the lives of, of obedient Israel back in, back in Exodus and and the Israel's, Israelites got out of, ate, ate the bread and they got out in haste. And the unleavened bread was the symbol then of God's provision, which they ate every year to remember. That's the, the Passover feast or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's what Jesus' disciples were doing in Jerusalem. So Jesus, so Jesus here at this feast, because the Exodus points towards our salvation, the sacrificial lamb points towards Jesus, and there's a dinner that commemorates that, just as there was a dinner that commemorated that back then. Jesus takes the common loaf in his hand and he says, See? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what does that mean? It means that from now on, this loaf represents Jesus' body, which is sacrificed on the cross to save you from your sin. That's what it means. The New Covenant memorial, the Lord's Supper, is a remembrance of Jesus' body given for us, his sin-atoning death on the cross. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup represents Jesus' blood, what it holds, which has brought about salvation in the new covenant. So we remember the shed blood of Christ. We remember Christ crucified. <laughs> Who the Corinthians seem to regularly, over and over, chapter after chapter, forget. You know, Paul has already referred to this back in chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8 when he said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He was already setting up these Corinthians for the, for the Lord's Supper talk, wasn't he? And let's remember what this means to us. Remember what this means to us. Jesus came to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin, in order to become sin for us. All of that involved his body, symbolized by the bread. The divine, eternal Son of God, he tabernacled among us. And he was tempted in every respect as man as we are, yet without sin. He was beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. And there he suffered and experienced God's judgment for our sin on himself in his body. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus was exiled from the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died a sinner's death for you. And the cup in the Lord's Supper is the, the new covenant in His blood, the, the new certain promise of salvation in His blood. You know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It has always been this way. We know this from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Jesus shed his blood to atone for your soul. It's the blood that makes the atonement. Because Jesus was willing to give up his life in your place 
He was sacrificed for you. It's how you were washed. It's how you were made whiter than snow. It's how your forgiveness was purchased. With the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Dear friend, if you don't know this Christ, you need to know him now. The punishment for your sins against God is death. There is only one whom God has sent and accepts the sacrifice for that, and it's Christ. And, and if you would turn to him and believe in him, he would wash you clean with his blood. He would save your soul by his sacrifice. So that on the day when he returns, you'll be his. And you'll be welcomed. And not condemned. That's the heartbeat of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that can be true of you, just as it's true of us. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper so that we would remember Christ. And that God remembers your sin no more. Hallelujah. Praise God. Paul is telling the Corinthians what they are to remember in the Lord's Supper. They are to remember Christ crucified. Jesus was selfless in his sacrifice. Jesus did good in giving himself as a savior for sinners. In his way, or in this way, Jesus loved the church. And did it all for the glory of God. This is Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, that they might recover the true Lord's Supper in the church. To eliminate the factions and to bind up the divisions and unite again. He has another thing left to say in this section, in verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we're not just proclaiming that, we're not proclaiming merely that Jesus died. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral service. We are proclaiming Jesus' sin-atoning death. That's what we're proclaiming. We know Jesus is not dead. He's alive, and he's standing at the right hand of God, the Father of Almighty, right now. Jesus died knowing the certainty of his resurrection and his ascension and his coming kingdom. In the Lord's Supper, we proclaim a new covenant salvation that we have in Christ. We who are the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to live in fellowship together with Him. The Lord suffers for us to strengthen and encourage us now until Jesus comes. He's given us this supper to do that, which is why Paul must go on to lay out for the Corinthians the serious consequences of doing the Lord's Supper wrong. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may be, not be condemned along with the world. You know, since celebrating the Lord's Supper proclaims Jesus' work on the cross, a person who abuses the Lord's Supper makes a false proclamation of Jesus' work on the cross. The Corinthians were despising and dividing the church that the body and the blood of Christ had brought together and humiliated and being indifferent to the people whom the body and blood of Christ had made their brothers and sisters, all while eating the body and blood of Christ. That's eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That. It's right here in the context. And so what are the consequences? Well, Paul says that some of them have been made weak, and some of them have become ill, and some of them have even died as a direct consequence of eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's astonishing. That's astonishing. I mean, we agree, in theory, that our Heavenly Father disciplines His children because He loves them, but we find it a little hard to accept that God actually practices such discipline upon us in our real lives. Paul says he does. And Paul is talking about discipline. Verse 32 makes it clear that this is God's disciplinary judgment on believers and not God's condemning judgment on unbelievers. God exercises discipline so that we may not be condemned along with the world, Paul says. It's right there in print. It's so that you won't be condemned with the world. We've got to be thinking, well, how do we know if, if our weakness, illness, or death is a direct consequence of our sin? Well, I don't know. I don't know the mind of providence. I, I know that if you come and ask me, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm not sure, but you know if there's sin in your life. You know what you need to do. Regardless, do what you would be doing anyway. Repent of your sin. And if you're weak, you should be turning to the Lord for strength. And if you're sick, you should be trusting the Lord for healing. And if you're dying, you should be relying on the body and blood of Christ to save your soul. All of these things, you see, they should be pushing the faithful towards more faith, towards repentance of sin. God reserves his right to discipline his children as he sees fit. To preserve your salvation and to protect his glory. Maybe you've never prayed. Lord, if I'm going to bring dishonor to you, take me out now. Maybe you haven't. I know I have. Lord, while I'm in my right mind, discipline me now. Why are the consequences so severe? Because their guilt is severe. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. They're indifferent to Christ himself. They're eating and drinking for themselves at the Lord's table. 
They're guilty of mocking the Lord's selfless sacrifice with their own selfish eating and drinking. They're mocking the Lord's uniting love by their arrogant humiliation of their brothers and sisters in the church. The unworthy manner is their indifference to Christ crucified and their indifference towards the brethren. They didn't care about the Lord's Supper. They cared about eating their own supper. So what's the remedy? So that we are not guilty of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So that we don't suffer our Heavenly Father's very real discipline. It's to examine ourselves. And in that way eat. Well, what specifically are we to be examining? Now, I've often heard preachers tell the congregation now, you have to examine your hearts and confess any sin that's in there in order to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you eat and drink the Lord's judgment on yourself. Now, if you are taking the Lord's Supper and are suddenly convicted of sin, you should repent of it. By that, you should be doing so. You should be doing that already. You should be doing that daily. You should be doing that all the time. We already took a time at the beginning of our service to confess our sins to the Lord. Whenever you examine yourself, you're going to find sin. That's, that's what happens. But to partake of the Lord's Supper, you must be trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. So the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers, but believers are called to examine their own hearts in difference to Christ crucified and repent in order to partake in a worthy manner. That's the first condition of the worthy manner, honoring Christ. It seems obvious to us, and it is, but the second needs to be more obvious to us. The second condition is to respect and love one another in the church. In this corporate ordinance. Paul says we're to examine ourselves in this particular respect, discerning the body and our relationships within it. Am I trusting in Christ? Yes. Does Jesus love me? Yes. Now, are we all united in love as we together participate in this corporate ordinance that Jesus has commanded us to do? That's the examination. To acknowledge and strengthen and build up the church and the body of Christ. You know, in the very next chapter, we'll be there shortly, Paul is going to say, for just as the human body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with the body of Christ, the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You know, there's another place already that we've glossed over where Paul has already prepped us for this back in chapter 10 when he said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Remember that? So we are to be examining our oneness as a body. From your perspective our love for one another, and if we realize that our relationship with a brother or sister is not loving and God-honoring as it should be, we must resolve to address it. And then eat and drink the Lord's Supper, which represents the gospel that will help us to reconcile. 
We have to come to understand the Bible's call to community over individuality. Because that is what the gospel produces, the one-body church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, do this. Do this. It's a command. If we come to the Lord's Supper and realize that we have a relationship with a brother or sister that needs attention, we are not to opt out of the Lord's Supper. No. You need the Lord's Supper. And you're to resolve to address that relationship. We're to do this. We're to resolve that very moment to address that relationship and we're to partake of the bread and of the cup. Pick up in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. You know, five times in this passage, Paul says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. When we gather together to worship, we welcome one another. We receive one another. Because we are the church of God, saints together, sanctified in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we gather at the Lord's table, it is not about our individual selves. It is about us, the church, being built up in love together as the body of Christ here on earth. So come to the Lord's Day gathering with that in mind. And when we come to the Lord's table, let's do these five things. Let's do these five things as the bread and the cup are being served. First, look within. Look at your own heart. Are you trusting Christ? Good. Now, are you guilty of dividing the church by mistreating a brother or sister in Christ? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Are you mad at a brother? Are you harboring resentment towards a sister? If so, repent. You know, and it's, and it's likely at that point, in that moment, that time's going to be short. You're not going to have time to fully process and repent your sin. But you don't opt out of the Lord's Supper. He said, do this. Resolve then, in that moment, to address that relationship as soon as is practicable. Lord, I'll do this. The very, the very gospel that, that I'm, I, with my brothers and sisters, that I'm enacting says I need to do this and that I can and that you will bring it about by the power of your blood and body sacrificed for us. Look within and look around. Look around at your brothers and sisters. Are you celebrating Jesus' love for you in his sacrifice for your salvation on the cross? Yes, good. Now, Remember that Jesus loves them too. Remember that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood for them too. Which means he loves them too. And so must you. Do you know their names? Don't be indifferent to God's holy and beloved blood-bought family of God that sits all around you this morning. Don't be indifferent to them. 
grab a church directory, learn their names and faces as, they, as you pray for them during the week. You will find yourself loving the people you pray for by name. And you'll start remembering their names. And you'll start talking to them because you're praying for them. Do you find it hard to get to know others in our little church? You know what makes it doubly hard? When the others that you want to know don't make it easy to be known. When you don't make it easy to be known. No wonder it's hard for people to get to know you. No wonder you're not at the top of their fellowship list. You just make it too darn hard. Soften up a little bit. Open up your circle just a little bit. Jesus shared himself completely with all of us. Look around and try to be a little bit like that. Look within, look around, look back at what Christ has done for his church. And the individual members thereof, of which you are but one. It's the gospel that we're celebrating that makes us one loaf. We're united in Christ. And we are united with one another in Christ. Even as we nourish our spirits with the body and blood of Christ, he's building his church, that's us, so that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Because we love one another as Christ loved us. That's his command. So let's work on the command. Two more. Look ahead. Christ will come back. In our eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. Not his final death, because he's not dead. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral. It's his sin-atoning death that we proclaim. It's the gospel that we proclaim. It's because he suffered the punishment of our death that we live. And we know that he is alive and that he is coming back for us. And with that, we look outward. Isn't Jesus the hope of the world? Isn't he? The Father has given him all authority on heaven and on earth. And our Lord has commissioned us to speak the good news of salvation in his name to the ends of the earth. And he has called us to proclaim this same gospel in our faithful partaking of the Lord's Supper here this morning. It's a gospel proclamation. It's an enacted picture of the gospel. And more. Because it's not about just doing it. It's not merely a duty. It's not merely a law thing. It's a grace thing. It's about the grace of God. It's gracious that... God sent Jesus to save us. It's gracious that Jesus gave us this ordinance so that we would be fortified, filled, nourished, strengthened every time we come together and partake of his body and his blood. Every time we say we're the one loaf that loves one another so that we can do that 
Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day until He comes. That's what it's here for. When we partake of the bread and of the cup, Jesus is present in spirit with His people who are filled with His spirit. It's a sweet time. The church and the supper are not about me. They're about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your goodness to us knows no bounds. And so we thank you for your love and for your care, for the salvation that you have given to us, which was undeserved by us which makes us extra thankful for your grace. And we pray that you would help us to love one another, that we might be built up together in love, the very love of Christ that you have lavished upon us. And we would be willing to tell others that Jesus is the hope of the world. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.